2: You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Rosheen Ingle. On today's show, later Jennifer Ryan speaks to journalist Lauren Bravo about her book, What Would the Spice Girls Do? A joyous and energetic celebration of girlhood, friendship and pop culture. Just to note, this interview was done a couple of weeks ago before the Spice Girls announced their reunion tour, so there is not one mention of it during the conversation, but you know that's happening and they're starting in Croke Park, which is amazing. But first, 16th century pirate queen Grace O'Malley, a.k.a. Gráinne Whale continued to inspire the author who unearthed her backstory. Anne Chambers is her name and it's 40 years since her biography of the fearless feminist icon was published. And to celebrate the publication of a beautiful anniversary edition of the book, Anne came into studio to speak to me about it and why Gráinne Whale's story is as fascinating today as it ever was. Anne, thank you very much for coming in to talk to us. us about somebody who's quite iconic, but you have a lot to do with the fact that now she is iconic. First of all, tell us about you growing up and what kind of a, a child and a girl you were.
3: Well, I suppose I was quite the ordinary 1960s Beatles, uh, girl, really. I uh, grew up in a, in a town called Castlebar, but every year we went on our summer holidays to Club Bay. Took a little cottage as people did at the time. And there I heard these stories and the folklore and every, pile of rubble off a castle was referred to as Grania Wales Castle and yet when I went to school Rogine she never appeared in our school history books and I always wondered about her these stories were fascinating you know mainly all about piracy and things like that and you said gosh you know did she really exist so moving on anyway like most West of Ireland people ended up in Dublin Ah yeah of course course I did (laughs) and uh, a job in the central bank and I was very very honoured and lucky to have been there under the governorship of the Great Ken Whitaker. and he heard I was from Mayo and now being a junior executive to be called into the governor's office really made, meant one thing really you did, the did sack, something the wrong to sack the chop or whatever but he, we, he was interested in Mayo he'd bought a little property there himself for fishing he was mad keen on salmon fishing and we got chatting about Mayo and in the course of conversation I said to him my I fascination with this woman, Grace Somalian. Did she exist and was she a real historical figure? And I said someday I was going to try and find out. And I remember what he said to me, he said, Why someday? Why don't you do it now? So discos, tennis, boyfriends, everything went out the door and I started on this four year voyage. And all my uh, holidays, I remember leaving the bank at five o'clock and I was in the National Library at quarter past five and thankfully they used to stay open then till 10. Saturday mornings, holidays, went to London to do all the research there. And bit by bit, I found this fascinating woman. And I can only say that she was imprisoned in the swirls and flourishes of 16th century documents. Because while the Irish analysts and historians wrote her out of history, her perceived enemy, the English, actually wrote her in. Isn't
2: that fascinating because, you know is that, that that she was sort of written out. But actually, in a place where she wasn't of that place, they they thought enough of her to kind of Absolutely. keep her in the annals.
3: All the military men and administrators in the Tudor conquest of Ireland who met her. Yes. About why
2: her. do you think, OK, we're going to talk about her a bit more, but just for that point, why do you think she was written out?
3: Well, you here? know what happened to a lot of women? You know, 50% of the population were missing in most historical, uh, historical uh, findings, really, in every country. But I think with Grace O'Malley, there are a few particular aspects, this idea of the great pirate, you know, piracy really belongs almost to the Irish imagination and the Caribbean or somewhere. And that piracy aspect of her life, which indeed is part of her life, really overshadowed everything else. Secondly, Irish women were supposed to be God fearing. If they did take any active part, there had to be a great nationalistic green, white and gold flag enveloping them. Neither of these things apply to grey Somali or her times. The times of the 16th century were one thing that we can all, even today, identify with, and that was survival. So, it was survival of herself, her family, her clan, and then she took over this mantle of the great chieftain, which the law would forbid her to be. Gaelic law would not allow allowed many things for women and was far more liberal than the common law of England, as you possibly know, mm. but one thing they didn't allow was chieftain, and she simply made herself one because. That was really her ability.
2: So a woman completely ahead of her time and out of step with the moors of of the time of Ireland and unwilling to kind of
3: go along with them. And paid the penalty by And paid the penalty
2: by that. So tell us about her. I mean, I know you've got the the whole book that you spent four years, so it's a lot. but, But tell us what people who might not be as familiar need to know about this woman. Right,
3: born in 1530 daughter of a Gaelic chieftain. So Grace O'Malley is Gaelic aristocracy. So her, her future was planned out for her first marriage at 15, which was the normal thing, had to pay political dividends. So she was married off in an arranged marriage to Donal Ancoggy, in Irish means of the Battles of Flaherty. So that can let your imagination run away with you. One of the headless chicks, really, of the 16th century. Sadly, there were a lot of them around who were more given to fighting their neighbours than combining against a common enemy. That was the problem. Think Braveheart with the chieftains in Scotland. Exactly the same thing here. Donalon Coggy, she had three children with him. So she did Fulfill all these female roles. And I often say, you know, Grace O'Malley is a woman before everything else. She was a mother, you know, twice married, divorcee, lover, grandmother, great grandmother. She fulfilled all these roles, which makes her fascinating, really. Donald was killed off in one of these tribal feuds and grudges. And it would seem from what Grace O'Malley says in her letters to Queen Elizabeth I when she was an older woman, that the O'Flahertys did not give her her thirds. In other words, they did not restore her her marriage dowry. And she was forced to come back to her father's territory around Bay and settled on Clare Island, that lovely, iconic, almost like sphinx-like um, island at the mouth of Bay. And there the legend of the Pirate Queen. She gathered together an army of 200 men that she admits to you always have to seek she's such a such a brilliant tactician you have to always seek behind what she's actually admitting to now it's very easy to say today she gathered together an army of 200 men these men came from different clans and i said it was a tribal society the old gaelic ireland of that period with every clan with their feuds and grudges how this woman managed to co- co- copper together um, a private army of 200 men from all different clans. Well, there's one answer to that. She was successful. Successful at trading, taking tolls on shipping that went in and out to Galway, then one of the biggest ports in for imports and exports in Ireland at the time. So her... Her decision on that would be following an O'Malley clan. They're a great maritime clan. While she might have been written out of history, the clan is there 2,000 years prehistory, always associated with the sea. Indeed, I often say if Grace O'Malley had been a man, I possibly would never have ended up writing her biography. She'd be only another O'Malley doing what came naturally. (laughs) So uh, that very... She became a very successful businesswoman. She admits to having a thousand head of cattle and horses. Now, that was the wealth in the 16th century, uh, always uh, in, 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 in cattle particularly. That was a huge fortune at the time. So she was quite successful. So like women today in business, you know, you have to be twice as good, really, as your male uh, counterparts. And Grace Somali was in the 16th century.
2: So tell us about the pirate aspect. What does that involve? I mean, it's, mm. it's kind of, it, it is like you say, the swashbuckling, the kind of, you know, X marks of the spot and all these things, the kind of myths that you have, the Caribbean. But what did it involve for her? What was, what was that all well, about?
3: Well, for you know, piracy has to be explained uh, for maritime clans ev- everywhere, whether you're in Cornwall and the South China Seas or in Ireland, on the west coast of Ireland. Piracy and plundering was part and parcel of seafaring life everywhere. The flotsam and jetsam and the sea, well, you kind of helped it along the way as well if you wanted to get. So the, 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 the piracy I found in relation to Grace O'Malley and her family were really taking tolls on ships. In other words, they'd surround a lumbering merchant man making its way dependent on the wind and the tides and these more versatile galleys that she had. She had a flotilla of around six galleys which could carry two hundred men in each galley, so there were quite substantial craft Now, the beauty about them was they were a versatile ship. Uh, they had the Latin sail which allowed them, unlike the square sails, to go and tack with the wind. There were roads so they could go into much shallow water, so you can imagine a flotilla of them surrounding the merchantman. Fixed arrows at their sale and say, basically stand and Stick deliver for up. safe passage. Wow. Now, there was another aspect to her life which people perhaps don't know, and that was the importation of Scots mercenaries, the famous gallow glass. Okay. And they were brought in from the fighting season, from May to October, for the Gaelic chiefs. This idea of the fighting Irish, I always find a little bit uh, silly, really, because we always got somebody else to do our fighting for us. And you had these hired mercenaries this with their great battle axes, and she, her ships, brought them in from the Scottish Isles in to fight and brought them back again and was paid for that. So you have all this seafaring, um, you know, Im- empire, really. And I think as well, the sea, you know, to us landlubbers, it looks like a barrier. To Grace O'Malley, it was a highway to new languages, to new cultures, to new fashions, to new produce. You know. so she
2: was she was obviously an extremely intelligent woman um, ahead of her time we, as we said. But give us a sense of her as as uh, from what you gleaned. I mean, it's amazing that you went and found there is documents like you mentioned letters to the Queen, and it's it's kind of incredible. Mm. What what how could you describe her or how do, what do we know about her as a as a person? Well,
3: we know her first as a mother uh, of four children, and we know her also then as an independent businesswoman, um, and she says this in her letters both to the Queen Elizabeth and also to the. Great Lord Burley William Cecil whom she corresponded with uh, quite a bit before she actually went to the Queen Um, and we know as well that she had to be daring and brave look at the awesome power of the Atlantic Ocean quite a part of what's happening on land to take on the Atlantic Ocean even today you know with all the modern day facilities and the technology that now happily our seafaring people have there was nothing like that then there were wooden boats that were out there but she was imbued with that seafaring ability that came in her genes, really. You know, the fact that she was a woman just made that slightly more different.
2: Do we know what she looked like? And we do, do, can we, or not? Can we take a picture of her? Well,
3: certainly there was no portraits and she didn't hang about long enough to to get one taken. But we do know that she was a strong woman. One had to be. Now, I'm not saying that she was built like a man. You didn't need to be. You had to be. The sea, as she would say herself, didn't care whether it was a petticoat or trues who sailed on her heaving bosom, just yeah. as somebody who was, you know, respected her moods. And being an O'Malley, she did. She would be able to see the sea. She would know when storms were coming. Because you do. If you're down the west coast of Ireland, I even know myself. You know, you know if the swallows are flying low, you know there's rain on the way. You know if there's a storm brewing out on the Atlantic. Think of some Somebody who's was imbued with that. She knew all of that. As a mother, she was very, very strict. You know, Queen Elizabeth was absolutely amazed that Grace O'Malley. One of the episodes that she mentions in, in the, the Queen mentions in her own letter that she chastised her own son when he went against her and went with her her enemy indeed the only really man who got the better off her was the English governor of Connacht Sir Richard Bingham and when Morocco Flaherty her second son decided to throw in his lot with the English what did mummy do? Well she sailed around the coast she went into Bonone uh, which is there in Connemara she attacked his castle she took a hundred head of cattle from him and actually as they say slew some of his, of his followers who offered to make resistance so we don't hear too much about Miracle Flaherty after that. And she was
2: telling the Queen this and the Queen was amazed. Absolutely. Tell us about how she ended up being mates with the Queen of England. Like it's kind of incredible. Yeah, it, is,
3: it is. Well, now we have to go a little bit historical here because what we're talking about now is the Tudor conquest of Ireland. Grace Somali lived in a time, and you have to think Syria today, you have a new modern um, acquisitive neighbour going to take over this country that has remained rooted in medieval times, the old outmoded Gaelic way of life. Ireland was beginning to be the weak chink in Elizabeth's armour because Spain was beginning to look on it as a backdoor to England. Then you have the acquisitive nature of 16th centuries, the great age of exploration, and with exploration comes exploitation, mm. of course, uh, the people who are discovered are exploited, mm. basically. So it was much easier for the younger sons of English landed gentry to jump the Irish Sea rather than go off to seek new lands for themselves across the Atlantic Ocean. So if you prodded a Gaelic chieftain to into rebellion, by English law, his lands were confiscated. So that was really the basis for the Tudor conquest of Ireland. And here you have somebody defending her clan lands, defending her wider family lands, and she's coming up against this. But she's able, because of her sea power, to evade this for a long time. But eventually, Sir Richard Bingham did catch up with her. He actually captured her. She was brought to uh, prison in Athlone and she talks about a gallows being erected where I might end my days. But all the chieftains of Connacht who now needed her, needed her leadership, needed her sea power, came and handed over hostages and Bingham released her. But she led three rebellions against Bingham, not against the English. You see, we've no nationalistic flag now on which to put around Mm. Grace O'Malley. Everyone is fighting for their own survival. It's only towards the end of the century when O'Neill and O'Donnell, when the penny drops and they say, we stop fighting each other, let's get together in the Confederacy, A little too little too late. Grace O'Malley had to make her own way, do her own deals, and by golly was she some dealer. She was a Wheeler dealer, there is no doubt about it. Is that how she ended up in London? So in London, to, uh, her, when, when Bingham killed her eldest son, O'Neill Flaherty, And took her youngest son, who was aboard her ship, the famous Tibetan along the first Viscount Mayo, whose biography I also wrote, he left a lot of papers behind him. And when Bingham took her favourite youngest son and put him in on a trumped up charge of treason in Athlone jail, there was nowhere and there was nobody. Bingham ruled the roost here in Ireland at the time. So what did she do? She said, I'll go to his boss. Now, the yeah, legends, the you top. know, go to the top. Wouldn't you do that Yes, yourself? I would. You know, I would Go exactly. over his head and Best. go to the top. <laughs> so the legends say, you know, that this great pirate queen off the west coast of Ireland sailed up the Thames, banged on the door of Greenwich Palace and said to the Queen of England, I am the Queen of Connacht. I'm here to see. Of course it didn't happen.
2: No, OK. I like that, though. Yeah, I know. It's a nice story. But what know, that'll
3: possibly end up in a film or something. I was just
2: going to say, yeah. we'll talk about that. It should be a film.
3: Yeah, yeah. but... uh want
2: the real story told, oh, not, absolutely. The, not the myth. Yeah, or, this
3: will yeah. never go on any far. Uh, They'd buy a pick, never, yeah. never. Uh, but no, it didn't happen. Firstly, there were elderly ladies, sixty-three years of okay. age in sixteenth-century Ireland, is like so, eighty-three yeah. yes. or ninety-three today. Secondly, uh, you don't go to Queen Elizabeth II today without going through various hoops and (laughs) and channels. So it was exactly the same in the 16th century. Grace O'Malley used her head. Again, the sea brought her all the news. Grace O'Malley was more tuned in what was happening internationally than she was happening in the middle of Ireland because of the sea being that, as I said, a great highway. And she knew that Black Tom, the Earl of Ormond, was a cousin of Queen Elizabeth, related to Queen Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn. And anybody related to Anne Boleyn got a great welcome at court. And Black Tom was handsome, which helped as well. Elizabeth liked her courtiers very handsome. Grace O'Malley knew him because he had lands near her in Mayo. And I found this little letter from Black Tom, a letter of introduction. It's preserved in the English state papers, saying, please, to Lord Burley, the great uh, secretary of state, Elizabeth's great secretary of state, to say, would he allow this lady come to court? Now, granted, there is a, a litany of misdemeanours from piracy to rebellion. And he against said that her. in the letters. But she has this safe passage, so she did sail her. Her, her. and last but she year, did
2: sail down the Thames, though.
3: She sailed down the Thames to Greenwich, where. Queen Elizabeth would come; she'd leave. It was an London. appointment, though. It was all organised. It was all organised. She was expected. Absolutely, she'd sent letters—four, or five letters—before that to Lord Burleigh. And what I love, this great statesman—you can imagine—and bringing, getting in um, missives from spies all over Europe. And Grace O'Malley's letter there, and you can see where he starts doodling, and he starts trying to do uh, find out her complicated family life, the two marriages, the sons and daughter from these marriages and tracing them down and you can see these are the little things that make these historic events come to life. So so they, they got on
2: the Queen and, and So 1593,
3: Grace. July 1593, she was allowed access, which was very, very difficult. Very few Irish people particularly got access to Queen Elizabeth. Uh, and she did and they did the deal. And the letter that I found written by the Queen about that meeting shows two women who I often think if they were around now at Brexit, would they have done the deal, you know, <laughs> with a lifetime experience behind both of them. You know, in women in a man's world who had a lot of barriers put in their way. For Grace Somali it was political like Elizabeth but it also was nature, you know the sea is a great barrier today even to women today. And um, they sat down and did the deal the sun was released And Grace O'Malley offered the Queen to fight with our quarrel with all the world, as the Queen wrote. But that, of course, was given a huge interpretation when she got back to the west of Ireland, was meaning that she was allowed to go back to her normal life of seafaring. Okay. So that was really... uh, her coup, but the last entry to Grace O'Malley, which I found, is at the huge age of 67. And I'm very sorry to have to say that, but I re- reiterate that it was like 87 yes. in the 16th century. She lived long for she, someone who'd had the life she'd absolutely. had, as well. Which is just incredible. And her last entry is she's leading an attack on MacNeil, Rory MacNeil, the chieftain of the Isle of Barra off the coast of Scotland. God. And, so and, and she did she marry again? You mentioned lovers. Where did she end up? Did she? Is there something about Hoth? I'm going kind of. yes. We Hoth is is one of these episodes in her life. Uh, she did marry. Firstly, she had a lover, a Hugh Hugh De Lacey, whom she rescued off the rocks off Ackle in in a Where storm. She did, as you mm-hmm. do. Then she married secondly, and she chose her own husband. Right. And this is the Grace uh, Richard in Ironbark. Uh, And uh, if I can just quote what was said about them when they visited one Lord Deputy in Dublin, the famous Sir Henry Sidney, the father of the great poet Philip Sidney, who met Grace O'Malley in Galway. Can you imagine that meeting between that great Elizabethan poet and courtier and this raw woman from the sea? And, And his father, who was Lord Deputy in Ireland at the time, said, there came to me a most famous Feminine sea-captain called Grace O'Malley with an army of two hundred men and three galleys. She brought with her her husband, for she was as well by land as by sea, well more than Mrs. Mate with him. In other words, she wore the trousers in the second marriage. It is a fascinating little pen picture of Grace O'Malley at the height of her power in middle age. She was such
2: an anomaly because there was nobody else, no other woman, no other girl, being able to have the life that she had and she created it for herself. She's Absolutely. some kind of uh, amazing person. So listen, yes. she changed your life really, that's what you say. I mean, you're 21, you're in the Central Bank and the Ken Whittaker, what a, what a great uh, inspiration to you saying, go off and do that. Sure. spend, sure. And you did, you spent four years and the book has never been out of print. Never, no. Um, it's called Grace O'Malley, the the biography of Ireland's pirate queen mm. um, and now we've got this beautiful new version of it mm. so I mean what, what has it meant for you how did she change
3: your life well, she changed my life I left the central bank I had written four books when I was in the central bank uh, on my spare time mainly biographies and then I decided took the big decision in the middle of a recession of course as one does to take a jump from the seventh or the sixth floor on the in Dame Street and not literally, uh, not literally, no, <laughs> and set off in the precarious uh, life of a writer. So I never, I didn't regret that, but I must say I loved working in the bank. I was doing kind of economic and financial research there, and really, there's no that was a great discipline as well, and it helped me in the historic research really because you're just changing subjects. So it was Ken Whittaker who got me going on that, and uh, eight books, nine books later, I. Wrote his biography. So,
2: so and he
3: launched all my books in the meantime. You know, so it was fantastic, but it was a huge, you know, responsibility, Ken Whitaker's biography, because as you know, he was voted Ireland's man of the century and all of that, and he gave so much to this country. But it, Grace O'Malley was at the bottom of it all. So, you, you
2: continue to write, um, mm. you've a very disciplined writing life, it seems like. Mm. You're nine to five. You, nine you, to five. as in. <laughs> in the central bank. Yes.
3: clocking clock out towards You my You study, love cooking,
2: yes. you grow your own vegetables, mm. you garden, so... Your life, life. thanks to Grace and thanks to Ken encouraging you, like turned it quite a different way.
3: It did. It did, really, yes. But I still have the same, I put in the same hours and I think you you have that cycle that's in you. For some other writers, it might be you you come alive at 12 o'clock, I'm brain dead at 6 o'clock in the evening, you know. So it's uh, it's just the way I, I do it. And I like what I'm doing, you know. I think if you're happy in your job, you really give it your best.
2: And you do th- say sometimes, I mean, because Grace is such an inspiration to you, you find yourself saying, what would Grace do? Has mm-hmm. she kind of inspired you as a woman, as a person in the world, just in terms of facing challenges, tough decisions, because she's no better woman than to, to face into whatever was going on? Of
3: course, of course. You often think of her and, you know, if you're mm-hmm. on at the sea or whatever, and she does impact in ways that you don't even know in your own personal life. And I think as I'm, all were ageing now. I think she is an iconic example of positive ageing. You know, she's still active in the most dreadful environment of the sea and in a, a political situation that really, as I said, was almost akin to what's happening in the Middle East today. And she kept on going. You know, the last entry in the state papers is 1601 when she's in her 70s, you know. This is the English state papers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's quite an amazing so I think, you know, we should all look at Grace Somali and say that, you know, age is not a terminus but she might look at it as a port of call, really. It's only another That's port of all, you know.
2: What about her descendants? Are there any people still knocking around that can mm. say, you know, she was my great, 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 great? Or I something?
3: get, you know, I have a website, www.gracesomali.com and from all over the world, you get people saying she was my great, great, great <laughs> man. And I say, you know, well, really? how lovely, but really... <laughs> I love that, you know, i can, come to yeah, the wrong person and yeah. they think you're going to indulge any of that old nonsense. No, but I mean, <laughs> I'm delighted that they even think that and if it inspires them, good for them. But but are any
2: real ones? The I
3: real have. ones, Really, the traceable ones. I
2: have a friend called Fiona O'Malley, and I'm just, she's from that neck of the woods, and I sort of feel she's very, you know. Well, the O'Malley
3: clan can trace, you know, they are down to that small area around Club Bay, and they certainly can all take pride in that. (laughs) But the main family would have been. Lord Sligo and Altamont in Westport House. The
2: Westport House connection then. The Westport so, House They connection, are proper descendants. They are.
3: They are the traceable but don't forget she flaherty O'Flaherty and Burke relations. No different, you know. different. Yeah, but threads. they would have fallen down the social strata and they had more things to do than keep up their pedigrees. They had to keep alive during famines. The work became tenants of their own ancestral lands through confiscation. So it, it, it really, her story epitomises really and her descendants which I really treated in the book on her son, the biography of her son, the first Viscount Mayo, you know, so you can see that we had another wheeler dealer there who was a Gaelic chieftain who went with the new age and became an Anglicised lord. You know.
2: So the pedigree thing did keep going through to the oh, Westbury House And then I suppose there, they had a lot of children, didn't they? they? They
3: had so. actually five girls, yeah. yes. Five so they all, yes. They're
2: all descendants of. Yeah, indeed.
3: Of they're, they 14th great grandchildren in and descent. Have you spoken to them
2: much about this? And do they, are they very conscious oh, of their Oh, they're very heritage? So proud.
3: Well, that's where I did my research among the, uh, uh, you know, I have to say that, uh, the late Lord Altamont allowed me the first time ever to go in and see the, the fabulous collection of manuscripts in Westport House. And I have to tell you, Roisin, that I had the opportunity to open 400-year-old manuscripts for the first time since their authors put quill to parchment. And I tell you, you know, nothing can, can buy that, really. It's like going into an Aladdin's cave you know, to get the information. They're all now transferred to the National Library. But when I had access... It was to actually them, in the house. In the and house. Where in the house was it? They were upstairs in huge iron boxes. I remember Jeremy, one refused to open. I remember getting a, a, a wrench or something and trying to open up and no. all these things spilling out, you know, and I'm just saying, oh my God, let me at did them. Did you, you take know? photos? No, I didn't. It was before I did, did that. you just take notes from... Oh, notes. Yeah, handwritten and notes. What stuff
2: was in that? Like, was there gems? Was there things? That-
3: yes, there were a lot of gems. You know, um, when I did the first version of the book, I was so unsure of doing it, and that's why I feel, as I said at the launch the last night, I feel just now I've got grace. Really, you yeah. know, at in your twenties, really, you hadn't lived, you hadn't experienced. You know, so I was very careful in the first um, edition of the book, just to put in the factual stuff that I found you know, not to detract from this fantastic woman that I found. And then I relaxed about it and I said, you know, this folklore, you to be preserved in, while factual history ignored her, folklore preserved her memory for 400 years. You have to have made an impact on your society for that to happen. And lo and behold, one day in Westport House, I'd heard the stories of Grace O'Malley being associated with this castle, actually a castle on my own cousin's land, 40 miles inland. And we used to laugh at our cousins and say, Grace O'Malley's castle, how can it be Grace O'Malley's castle? She's out in Clue Bay. And I found this old legal document to show... That the chieftain of this particular castle, who was called Miles McEvely, had given over the castle to Tibbet Nalong, Toby of the ships, Grace O'Malley's son, because he was his foster son. And in Gaelic law, fosterage had huge implications and responsibilities. And that is how the Grace O'Malley folklore tale here it was in black and white in a legal document. So it really got me to think about I folklore. mean, it is
2: just amazing, though, when you came across her, that this idea that she wasn't a real person, that it was this myth thing. And to find this reality, this real living, breathing person, and the fact that factually she didn't exist, mm-hmm. but as a kind of idea, as a notion, she very much lived through all these hundreds of years. Absolutely. And now you've brought her back to the lived I mean, it's amazing, and you're incredible for having kept up with grace all this time and and making sure that because nowadays, little kids learn about her. This is the thing compared to what you were saying about finding the rubble in Blue Absolutely. A. Nowadays, there's, there's little picture books. There's, she's, so she's writ large in so many and indeed, I've ways.
3: written a child's version yeah. of the biography Excellent. because okay. I was very, in, you know, there's lots of novels about her. Of course, there are. And it inspires people. Mm. And that's great. But the factual yes. story is the one I'm interested in. And you've written a play as well? Is that right? I have on ageing. Okay. Mm. So and inspired by her. And, and Queen Elizabeth I, yes. So
2: well, listen, Anne, you're incredible. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. We've had we've had a number of conversations about her, but I think this is the one that I feel like most that I know really who she was. And um, the book is amazing. It's a beautiful book. It was launched by.
3: Indicating. Yes. Nice. Another, and Mayo indeed, man. Ellen She's O'Malley Dunlop as well, uh, who was a chairwoman. Of I met after, Ellen yes. on Clare
2: Island actually once upon a did. time. Yeah, mm. in the rain. I remember I was cycling mm. along and there she was. Yeah, very um, proud of
3: her, ap- of her Grace O'Malley. Absolutely. And
2: actually Ellen is a cousin of Fiona, who I mentioned, Fiona O'Malley. So that's kind of, it's all tied up. So that's amazing. But listen, thank you so much for coming in. The best to look with it. Everyone should read it. We need to reclaim her as, as an icon, a feminist icon, um, I suppose, absolutely. even though the word was not invented then.
3: Viking for positive ageing for
2: positive ageing mm. as well which you're doing very well it sounds like as well with all your, the stuff that you're into so thanks Amelia Ann Anne Chambers
3: Pleasure That was
2: Anne Chambers speaking to me there about the 40th anniversary edition of her biography of the pirate queen Grace O'Malley And now the words girl power conjure vivid memories of short skirts and platform boots. But it wasn't just about the looks. It was about a sort of feminism. The Spice Girls gave a generation their first glimpse of the power of friendship, of staying true to yourself and of sheer bloody mindedness. Journalist Lauren Bravo has written about the girl power generation and the conversation it started around gender equality in her book, What Would the Spice Girls Do? Jennifer Ryan spoke to her about it.
1: Lauren Bravo, thank you very much for talking to the Women's Podcast. Now I know today is launch day for your book and you've just been out to a very nice lunch. Can you tell me the significance of the place where you just had lunch? I can. So um, I've just been at the
4: St Pancras uh, Renaissance Hotel, which um, once was the London Midland Hotel, and it's where they filmed Wannabe. So I've just been dancing on that very famous staircase. A man walked past and he took one look at us and went, you're doing the Spice Girls thing. And then he just (laughs) took the camera off us and art directed us into place. It was great.
1: So obviously, we're here to talk about Spice Girls because you have a great book out called What Would the Spice Girls Do? When I say girl power, what does that mean to you?
4: Um, it conjures up me being eight years old, uh, wearing a pair of enormous knockoff platform shoes, um, yelling at all the boys in my class at school being, um, well, basically quite a handful. Um, but I think also thinking, uh, about my gender for the first time and actually, um, thinking about all the different ways in which that might affect me. You know, not quite knowing the full extent of it, but certainly uh, a fair, a pair of feminist sort of training wheels are the way that I like to think about girl power.
1: And so were all your friends around the same age into the Spice Girls too?
4: Oh God, completely. Oh, yeah. I think um, there's a perfect window, age window. I think if you were between the age of about six and maybe 11 or 12 when Wannabe came out, um, very likely you were a big Spice Girls fan. Um, And yeah, I was completely caught up in it. I absolutely loved them.
1: And what was it about them that drew you to them? Because they they came out at a time in kind of the middle of uh, Brit pop lad culture. Mm -hmm. Had that anything got to do with it? Were they like this kind of oasis in the desert of maleness that was so pervasive at the time? I think that's
4: completely it. I think they were an oasis in the desert of, well, oasis and Mm. blur. And um, there was so much machismo in the charts back then. Um, Particularly, I think the mainstream, you know, pop charts were all about boy bands and, you know, girls obsessing over boys. And um, we had Eternal. uh, They were great. But that was pretty much it. You know, and Riot Girl and things were happening um, and they were amazing for older age groups. But, you know, if you were eight years old, you weren't listening to indie or grunge or anything like that. You just had pop music. And so Spice Girls came along and they were just the most phenomenal breath of fresh air. You know, the fact that they all looked different for one thing. They all had these individual personalities and it might not seem very progressive to us today. Thankfully, I think you know, we've moved on a lot. But back then, I think it's hard to sort of underestimate the, uh, the power that that had looking up and seeing that as a little girl.
1: And did you have a girl gang, and did you all decide democratically who was which spice?
4: <laughs> I don't know about democratically I mean it you know it came down to some pretty sort of spurious criteria, I think in a lot of playgrounds um I was Jerry mainly because I was the bolshi one um I was sort of loud and bossy. I didn't have ginger hair, but I dyed it specifically to sort of claim the role um And I did, I had a girl gang. Yeah, I had one back then. And, you know, I've had different iterations of that through my life. The book is actually dedicated to my sort of gang of school friends from high school. So a little bit later on, but you know, they're still my best friends and have been for 18 years. I think, you know, the Spice Girls really taught us something about the power of friendship as well. That was one of the most important messages.
1: You touched on the feminism that the Spice Girls represented. Could you, could you describe what it was? What was their particular brand of feminism?
4: I think one of the most important things was how accessible it was. Um, you know, I think to a lot of older uh, people and feminists back in the day, they may have seen it as something slightly watered down. Um, but actually, I think the point was that it was so accessible. You didn't need, um, you know, a degree in gender studies to get to grips with it. All you needed to have was an opinion. And um, I think there was something about their confidence, the way that, you know, they were the first people to put their hands up and say that they weren't necessarily the best singers in the world or the best dancers or, you know, the most qualified to be these kind of global megastars, but that never held them back. They got up and had a go anyway. And they were so opinionated. You know, you watch them in interviews and they were uh, they were so forthright. They, they all shouted over each other. They would shut down interviewers if they asked them anything they didn't like. Um, that kind of confidence was just completely intoxicating, I think, to watch as a little girl sort of figuring out your place in the world. Uh, so I think their feminism was you know, largely based around that, the idea of giving girls the confidence to stand up and shout um, and get angry. And also the idea of valuing your female friends before boys, I think, you know, was was very formative for a lot of us.
1: And do you think that has stood the test of time? Because, you know, you say that about uh, kind of loud and confident uh, pop stars, female pop stars. I mean, you have your Ariana Grande's, you have, you know, your Taylor Swift's and all that. And they would all be those kind of figures as well. Yeah,
4: absolutely. I think, yeah, you know, it's interesting kind of looking back um, in 2018. I think in some ways we've come tremendously far. You know, I think we're so much more inclusive. We're so much more conscious of the messages that we're putting out, um, particularly to young audiences. But actually also there was quite a lot the Spice Girls were doing that um, feel progressive even by today's standards. I think the fact that they weren't very polished, was kind of brilliant the fact that you know it was always a little bit rough around the edges it was always a bit DIY a bit improvised and actually a lot of today's stars um, are so flawless and so perfect and we know that you know a lot of young people today I think are quite hung up on perfection and this idea of having to sort of mimic the the flawlessness that they see on social media and actually the Spice Girls weren't really about that you know Mm, if you watch the old interviews they were um they were pretty rough and ready but in a way that was quite brilliant so I certainly think that, you know, pop pop music and female pop stars are really carrying on that mantle today. But, um, yeah, there was something pretty special about them still. You know, you look at the lyrics of their songs and actually they very rarely talked about catering for men. It was always about getting what they wanted. You know, if you really bug me, then I'll say goodbye. Lyrics like that. And then, you know, a few years later, you had sort of Leanne Rimes singing How Do I Live Without You when she was 15. Uh, so there was quite a stark contrast um, that, yeah, I think if you unpick the pop landscape today, I'm still not sure there's anyone necessarily doing it with quite the sort of ferocity that the Spice Girls were.
1: And you, your book is called What Would the Spice Girls Do? Did you grow up using that as your moral barometer, a question you used to ask yourself in situations
4: I think um, certainly at a certain period in time, I did. Um, you know, I can't pretend that I kind of carried on thinking about the Spice Girls all through my teens. And, you know, I certainly didn't. I was a sort of indie kid for years. You know, I desperately wanted a sort of skinny jeans boyfriend in an indie band and I worshipped the Strokes and things like that. So um, I think there was definitely, you know, quite a few years where I sort of forgot about the influence of the Spice Girls. But um yeah, I think, you know, during those golden years, the sort of late 90s, they were absolutely the the best idols I could think of to look up to. You know, everything they did gave me permission to be this kind of loud, opinionated uh, girl sort of running around and high kicking everything and telling the boys exactly what I thought of them. Um and actually, you know, spending
1: this year completely immersed in the Spice Girls, I think I'm still taking a few lessons
4: from them now. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> and there are quotes from people of a certain age uh, peppered throughout your book uh, with their memories and feelings to do with the Spice Girls. How did you gather those? Was it on Twitter or did people get in contact with you?
4: It was um, a combination of things. I mean, I knew from the beginning that the book would only work if I had as many different voices in it as possible. Um, just, you know, me telling my story and giving my opinions, I don't think would have been a very good book. So uh, I put together a big survey and um, started spreading that uh, through first friends and then friends of friends. And then it kind of got sent far and wide. So about half the people who responded to it are people that I, I'd never even met, um, And actually, yeah, there was no shortage of people who were kind of signing up to share their memories with me. So I quizzed everybody on, you know, which Spice Girl they were and what were the reasons for that sort of casting process in the playground. I asked people about the clothes that they wore, what their parents' feelings were towards them. And that was quite interesting. You know, it was quite divided. I had a lot of people whose parents disapproved and thought that they were too loud and brash and rude. Uh, And other people's parents who absolutely love them and could definitely see the spark of something quite empowering, I think, or just like the music, you know. Um, So, yeah, so I kind of gathered, gathered things that way. And then I also spoke to a few real mega fans, um, slightly more in depth about, you know, what they felt the cultural
1: impact was um, for them. So, yeah, it was quite a nice cross section of, of opinions I see a quote from Dolly Alderton on the sleeve of your book as well. And I know she's a, we've spoken to her on this podcast a a couple of times before, and I know she's a great believer in the power of female friendships and says that they're some of the greatest love stories of her whole life. Is that something that's uh, important to you now as well?
4: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think, I mean, I I love Dolly. Her book, you know, it's just Mm. one of my favourite books ever. And, um, yeah, we have a lot of similarities in that she went to an all-girls school and I went to uh, an all-girls school for high school. And, you know, in many ways, I think that sort of being surrounded by women, it it set us back when it came to talking to boys. You know, we all went off to uh, university and had absolutely no idea how to talk to men for about three years. Um, But it gave us tremendously strong female friendships. And I do really believe in that. But I think it's interesting as well. I think, you know, the traditional ideas of forming friendships in the playground um, aren't necessarily true for everybody. You know, a lot of people find school quite tough going and a lot of people find um, traditional female cliques quite tough going. You know, they're not always, if you're lucky, you fall into a brilliant one, but it's not always the way for everybody. But I think that the Internet has actually given us brilliant ways of forming these kind of very powerful, supportive friendships. And um, one of the things I talk about in the book is uh, a group called AWOT, the awesome women of Twitter, which I sort of started going along to in 2011. And some of the women that I met through that collective are still my closest friends now. You know, I've been bridesmaid for some of them and, uh, and things like that. So I think, you know, the modern world is giving us lots of different ways of finding these networks. But certainly uh, having a big sort of group of of supportive women around me um, is something I really hold very dear. And, you know, I don't think I kind of could have written the book without that or Mm. got anywhere in my career, really, without having other women as my sort of generous cheerleaders and spurring me on. So, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Uh, Finally, one more question for you. Who do you hope picks up this book? Everyone, obviously, and the Spice Girls in particular. But uh, who do you imagine (laughs) reading it? Um, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, millennial
4: women, I hope, uh, you know, who kind of love a bit of nostalgia, but also are, you know, thinking quite critically about the world and uh, feminism at the moment and how far we still have to go. I would hope that they would enjoy the book. Um, I'd also really love people to read it who maybe loved The Spice Girls back in the day and haven't really thought so much about the impact that they might have had beyond the music and the outfits. You know, I'd love it if somebody kind of read the book and went, "Oh, do you know what? I hadn't really thought about that before, but now I've sort of put that together, and um, I can see that latent impact." And I, you know, I'd really love that. Um, and also, boys, you know, yeah. I could. Too much to hope. I would. My my boyfriend has enjoyed the book, and obviously, he's obliged to tell me that. Um, but I would hope that men could get quite a lot from it as well. I certainly don't want it to be something that's only for women. I think you know, it, it's an interesting discussion. Sort no, of what
1: a, men are feminists too.
4: Exactly. Absolutely. We, we need them to be. God, you know, <laughs> we can't really get anywhere without uh, without getting men on side. So, um, yeah, I'd I quite like it to sort of spread far and wide. Anybody who loves pop culture um, and a bit of nostalgia, I'd, I'd love to read it.
1: Well, it's called What Would the Spice Girls Do by Lauren Bravo. And Lauren, it's been really nice speaking to you. Thanks for talking to the Women's Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
2: And that's it for today. Thanks to Anne Chambers and Lauren Bravo for speaking to us for this episode. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at iT Women's Podcast, or you can email us at podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we always enjoy a bit of praise, so go to iTunes, give us a review, and tell all your friends about the podcast. This podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time. Thanks for listening.
0: Hold up.